Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 116 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. Today's guest is Michael Honiger. Michael is a professional photographer and author. He spent much of his youth growing up in West Germany in the 1960s. His father was an officer with the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. Michael knew almost nothing of his father's career at the time, but there were a lot of clues that he was involved in some very important and very secretive work. Years later, Michael embarked on a quest to learn more about his father's work and put it into the larger context of the Cold War. I invited Michael onto the podcast to discuss his new book, The Need to Know. It's a collection of stories, records, and photos, both from his own family's years in West Germany, the archives of the East German Stasi, and from the Berlin Spy Museum, among other places. But before we dive into this story, I want to ask you something. Are you an amateur military historian like me? Has this podcast rekindled your interest in Eastern Europe and the Cold War? Maybe you're finally getting into reenacting and living history, just like you've always said you would. If so, you should check out the incredible collection of surplus military goods at krishiki.com. Kruss himself scours the continent for the best uniforms and field equipment available and delivers them right to your door. He's got almost anything you can imagine and many things you haven't. Uniforms from East Germany, the Soviet Union, and modern-day Bulgaria, Poland, and Russia are all available. Rucksacks, mess kits, and load-bearing gear are also up on the site right now. The inventory is constantly changing, so you never know what kind of gems you might stumble on, all at very affordable prices. Find it all at krashiki.com. That's K-R-U-S-C-H-I-K-I.com. And use the discount code SPYCRAFT101 for 10% off your order. Michael, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Justin. Thank you. Certainly. I appreciate the opportunity. So I've had the sons and daughters of several intelligence professionals and spies on the podcast over the past couple of years. And it's always amazing to me how difficult it can be for them to really know their own parents and how they kept you know, such a large portion of their lives completely hidden for years or even for decades. And I think that one thing that kind of separates you from a lot of my previous guests is that your father's work was right there in your hometown in many ways. So can you tell me what it was that led you to kind of pursue this project in the first place? I'd be happy to. It was rather actually very serendipitous, the whole manner in which the project got started. I was attending uh, a workshop, a photo workshop in Maine, and uh, I was being interviewed by one of the participants in the workshop. And she asked about my family background, so she had to introduce me to the whole group. And I mentioned my father was a spy uh, during the Cold War. Well, when she went in to introduce me to the group, that's what she focused on. And I began to realize at that point that, and everyone was quite interested in hearing more, 
including the facilitator of the workshop, she said, what a great idea for a photo project. Well, I was, hmm. I was in between photo projects and looking for something to delve into. And I thought I agreed with her and uh, thought this, this would be interesting. But I needed to begin a process of, of gathering more information. But I left there on a high, basically, thinking, you know, this, this would be interesting, not only from a historical point of view, but to answer some of the questions I always had, if possible, because my father had passed away. And I no longer had him as a resource. Also, our family didn't know. I asked my mother after this workshop, I asked my mother, who is still alive, whether she remembered much of the period. And she said that his work was always segmented. He never shared details. She knew what he did, but the details were never divulged. Hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a regular, you know, totally, un, a totally expected component of that kind of work. But it's the unfortunate side effect of it is that it kind of keeps children from really getting to know what, you know, kind of drove their parents to do what they did. And, you know, it probably had unexpected impacts on the course of all of your lives, you know, as his career took him to different places and the stresses of the job and that kind of thing, I would have to imagine. So how did you go about piecing the story together since, like you said, your father had already passed? Well, fortunately, I did have a number of conversations with him when he was still alive. The other element in, in this entire episode, really, is that he's, I should mention that he was fluent. He was bilingual in German, which our family is originally from Switzerland, and he was raised speaking fluent German, which made a big difference in terms of his job with the Air Force as a special agent. And, and it, you know, it was that, that in, if you will, that, that led him into some of the situations that we later, that I later discovered. And in terms of piecing the story together, I, I began, the first thing I did when I, when, after I left this workshop was I started doing letters to, for example, a Freedom of Information Act request to the Air Force to see if they had any records of any of the cases he worked on. That turned up nothing, which didn't surprise me. But I thought after 60 years that there might be something that was extant. I also discovered that the Stasi records, the East German secret police records, um, had been divulged to the public, and I wrote to them. There was a there was a mechanism online for contacting them, and you fill out a form, and uh, I told them all the details, and I did hear back from them rather promptly, uh, and they said that any international records of of the Stasi were the first things destroyed when the regime collapsed. And they were most efficient in destroying the international records. And after doing further research on the Stasi, I realized that they had a, a very 
distinct interest in keeping those records or destroying those records because they still had active agents in West Germany. So after all of that, I I also began to, I, I was a little frustrated when I got the response that they didn't have anything because those records had been destroyed. So I decided I had to go to Berlin. I found out there was this, the German spy museum was had opened fairly recently. I thought, well, maybe I'll contact someone there. And I, I got in touch with a, the curator of their archives and asked him if I would, if I could photograph some of the the tools of the spy trade that they had in their their archives. And he was very responsive and very kind. And we set a date in February of 2020. And I I flew to Berlin and had a whole day at the German Spy Museum, which which I highly recommend to anyone interested in espionage. It's it's very interactive, very interesting exhibits. I spent the whole most of the day photographing these these tools of the trade, all which are in many of which are in the book as inserts. So you can you can see some of the both US or allied tools that were used. You know, I'm talking about bugs, I'm talking about you know the Minox camera is the typical one, but the, there were some pretty unusual elements in in their archives. One of which, the most interesting, I thought, was uh, a watering can kept in the bottom had a camera, and it was used by the Stasi at funerals of dissidents. And they would have a caretaker at the grave next to the grave where the dissident was being buried. And they would photograph anyone coming as a mourner to the grave site. They were automatically suspected of being fellow dissidents. I thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was pretty insidious, actually. Yeah, yeah it, it certainly is. But it was you know, effective and efficient as well. Especially if you assume the worst about everybody around you, I guess you'll never be surprised or disappointed. Exactly. By their actions. Exactly. So, yeah. They are, that was a fascinating organization in, in all the worst possible ways. But, you know, looked at it from their perspective, that is an incredibly advantageous thing to do to figure out who is in this person's, you know, family and associated network and what were their true feelings about him, you know, that sort of thing. It's oh, absolutely. Um, very advantageous to do it. But, you know, you think what kind of what kind of person thinks that up exactly. and how, how do they sleep at night? You know, exactly. Well, there were many things that the Stasi did in my research that were real jaw droppers as far as I was concerned. And I just thought that one summarized it rather neatly. So, yeah. Yeah, certainly. They were a very, I don't know how to say this neutrally, but they were an impressive organization in many ways. No, they were from, from the point of view of, of espionage. They were quite efficient. So, mm -hmm. yeah. No doubt about it. So you were kind of dead-ended in many ways right off the bat with learning more about your father. I'm, I am curious, did the Air Force, did they simply not respond or did they say that they, were, they had nothing in connection with your father's work? No, they, they did respond in, in all fairness, but it was one of these bureaucratic, sorry, there's no records that conform, yeah. conform to your request. So, okay. Yeah, that is unfortunate. Yeah. Perfectly valid point. Like what could possibly be worth keeping secret after 60 years? Right. Very little, <laughs> Very I would little. imagine, yeah. honestly. Yeah. Unfortunate. 
So how did you start to piece this together? Was it mostly like from talking to your mother? Did you locate any of his former co-workers or anything like that? Well, you know, at this point, most most of his co-workers, I, I would imagine, had also passed away. But I did talk to the family, and I got all sorts of interesting tidbits from my sister and my mother. And what I, what I decided to do was, since I didn't have any concrete information, I also, we had some very dear German friends from our time, since my father and mother both spoke German, and we children also learned German. But most of, most of their friends were German, and a few of them are still alive. And I did make a trip to Germany uh, right after COVID ended. That's another completely bizarre story. But I collected, in doing research, I collected information on all of the border crossing or border museums, that, which are now museums, but at, at one point they were actually points of, of crossing into mm -hmm. East Germany. And I decided I wanted to drive to as many of those that I could get that were near Kassel, where we were stationed and posted. And I sort of plotted out which museums looked the most interesting. I drove to Germany, or I flew up and then got a car for about 10 days. And I uh, went back to Kassel. Uh, stayed with some old German friends uh, of the family that w one family member, the Luca family, was one family I visited, and all of their the generations that followed, and they had been very close friends of my my father and mother, and in fact, Herr Luca, this is a kind of interesting sidelight. He owned a toy store in the small town where we lived in Kassel, a little village. And he owned a toy store, and, and I was, you know, a 10-year-old kid who, who was enthralled with his toy store. And my father joined me one day in going into the toy store, and they, they started up a friendship that lasted the, the rest of their lives, actually, a very close bond. It wasn't until I started doing research and went on this trip back to Germany that I discovered that Herr Luca had been born in East Germany and had defected. And I didn't know that at the time when, we, when I was a child. And it, it made things suddenly, and my mother mentioned this also, that when, we found, when I found this out, we began to, it, it raised all sorts of questions because my father and Herr Luca, they, he got my father to join a, a handball team that was a German handball team. And they played, you know, weekly in handball season. And uh, my father, you know, hung out with all of these, this team. And we began to wonder if Herr Luca, and this is all in retrospect, we be began to wonder if he had been helping my father recruit agents recruit, you know, sources, because, you know, there were, there were so many questions raised when we found out where he actually came from and that he had defected. And my mother said she did not, she was not aware of it until much later. So, hmm. 
It was one of those quirky things. Yeah, yeah, I can see how that would raise a lot of questions. And that's that's the story here so many times is that we end up with more questions than answers, you know, and that there's it's so much time has passed that there's really no way to verify it. But I mean, your father sounds like he was a very capable guy and he would certainly have had the lay of the land around him and his, you know, nearby contacts, you know, what advantages can they provide or what vulnerabilities do they represent or something like that. So I can certainly see why that would have become, he would have, that Herr Luca would have been of, of, of interest to him and his organization as well. Absolutely. And it was interesting because also because none of the other agents in his office, of course, most of them didn't speak German, but he spent so much time with them that it just leads us to suspect. And it's kind of an interesting speculation. Yeah. 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 And, and you know, quite what you said as well about how they met and how they saw each other. Those are perfectly natural things that can be explained away by somebody else, but perfect opportunity to pass information both ways. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, what's, yeah. What could you suspect about a guy, you know, taking his son into a toy store and the son walks out a few minutes later with a new toy and, you know, there's nothing to that, really. Right. And Lord knows I spent a lot of time in that toy store. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So it must have worked out for all three of you. Exactly. Then, like. Wow. Good, good, good. So were there some other things like in retrospect that you recall now that, you know, with your with 2020 hindsight, that like, wow, that I wonder if that was some sort of, of work thing for my dad as well. There, there were quite quite a few instances where either it was obvious or, you know, you kind of suspected. For example, we would go every, often on a Sunday, we would go for a drive. We would leave Castle and go out into the country and find a small village. And it was, in retrospect, these villages always seemed to be close to the border. And we went to one called Hangmunden, which was very close to the border. And my father would, you know, there were restaurants and the usual, the Sunday outing was usually to go to a restaurant in the afternoon and with German friends or, or, or not, just the family. And we would have a nice lunch and then go for a hike or a walk in the, in the woods or whatever. Dad would disappear often before lunch. Hmm. He would just, he'd say, go in, get a table. I'll be, I'll be with you in 20 minutes or something like that. And my mom would, you know, would lead us all in. Sure enough, a half hour later, he would join us. Well, at the time, you know, I just thought, I, I didn't know what he was doing, you know, and nobody did. In retrospect, I imagine he was, you know, meeting uh, contact because we were so close to the border that it, it made sense. There, were, there was another instance, this was in Wiesbaden, actually, where I woke up one night, I had gone to bed, and then I woke up, there was some noise that awakened me. And I went into the living room, and, and there was a man talking to my father, who I had never seen before, and they were speaking German. And my father just said, go back to bed, and didn't introduce me or anything, which was not unusual in those, that kind of circumstance. And I woke up the next morning, came out, and I realized the man had slept on our couch and then was gone the next morning. It was just a blanket or whatever. And he was gone. And I asked my father, you know, who, who was that? 
And he said, you have the need to know, which was his, which was the question, that, that his response to any question about what he was doing work-wise. <laughs> Do you have the need to know? And that meant just, just don't talk about it anymore. Change the subject. And we all were very well trained in, you have the need to know and hence the name of the book by the way <laughs> yeah yeah that's fascinating so and that that kind of makes me wonder you know speculate really like if he wanted to keep his family so separate from some things was this like an absolutely extraordinary circumstance you know what i mean that couldn't possibly wait because if he you know his nose his family's sleeping upstairs he would normally i would assume he would normally want to avoid this kind of thing so what was it that was so time sensitive so urgent that he would, you know, potentially allow you to see what you did see. You know what I mean? No, it was very unusual. It was the only time it ever happened. Yeah. And the only other, the only other episode of, of a similar nature. Again, it was late at night. I woke up. I come out, and um, my father is listening to a, a radio broadcast, um, and he's in, in the dining room table, taking down notes very diligently and uh and it you know i was listening to the to what they were saying on the radio and it was all gibberish you know and hmm. i didn't think much about it until the next morning i asked again and he said do you have the need to know and eventually i i figured out he was taking down some sort of code and in in going through his things in researching the book some of the family you know, the family, his papers and that sort of thing. I found some of the coding sheets that he had been writing. I realized that, you know, it, I tried to crack the code, but then I realized they were probably from one-time pads. Mm -hmm. There was no way to really... Well, the book designer actually asked me if I could tell her what it said. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry, it's, it's lost to history, so... Yeah, yeah. Would you like to see what it's like to work in the shadows, negotiate under duress, gather intelligence for your action cells, and participate in simulated battle? You can at Centurion Combat Simulation's next big event. You will operate in the dangerous Latin American country of Copan, where you either fight for equality as part of a socialist insurgency, or work to stabilize and promote democracy in a U.S.-backed war. In this fully immersive world, you have the ability to change the course of history by fighting for your side as a soldier or spy. Centurion Combat Simulations games run for 46 hours over three days with embedded role players to guide you and your teammates. Centurion's next event is at the Arena Training Center in Blakely, Georgia, from December 8th through December 10th, 2023. Centurion Combat Simulations is owned and operated by retired U.S. Special Operations Combat Veterans. Don't miss out on this amazing opportunity to immerse yourself and test yourself. Enlist now at joincenturion.com. Well, I love seeing that in the book, honestly, and I appreciate you sending me ahead of time. That was such a cool thing to find in your father's effects there, and it kind of validates everything that you thought. Honestly, at that point, like he really was deeply involved in some very serious stuff. No, there, there is no question. Um, but, you know, again, when I asked him, it was always, do you have the need to know? 
he never confessed anything. So we never heard anything uh, about what he did. So that is that's unfortunate. So was he at least open about like I I work for the Office of Special Investigations, or did he just say I'm a you know a lieutenant in the Air Force or or whatever it was at the time? Did uh, did he tell you something? Completely different? No, 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 no. He would. First of all, he, he didn't wear a uniform, and none of the agents did. He just went in a suit and tie to work. But there was no question he, he that he worked for the Office of Special Investigations, that he was a special agent, and and that was it. And, and I met all of his work colleagues. I'd go to the office, okay. and he wasn't secretive about that. But you know. They socialized together also, the agents, and my parents <clears throat> were friends with most of the other agents and their families, and, you know, there were picnics and that sort of thing occasionally, and that was more in Wiesbaden. In Kassel, the group was much smaller, and we lived in a housing area that was actually on the German economy. It was There were four apartment buildings, and in a school, and that was about it in Kassel. So, okay. So, aside from those occasional interesting in indicators about your dad's work, what was it like for you to grow up in that time period? Like, did the the Cold War kind of loom over <clears throat> everything for everyone at that time, or did you feel like it was a very normal childhood then? Oh no, I I think I I felt that it was a normal childhood. I had uh, maybe a not so normal from from the perspective of somebody growing up in America, but because we never went, you know, we were there for four years from 1959 to 1963, and we never went back to the States during that time because in those days, air travel wasn't quite the econ economic thing it is today. No, I, I, I grew up, I, had, I went to school in Air Force or, or military schools, not military in the sense of martial, but they were sponsored by the military, and my teachers were all Americans, other than the German teachers. I had a, a pretty, the one unusual thing, I used to go into German bunkers that were near, Kassel was bombed heavily during the war because it was a major industrial site for the Nazis. I would play in bunkers and find all these Nazi relics and bullets and and for for a kid of ten, I mean this was heaven, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and all my friends, you know, we would just we would go wandering and and find these things and you know, we, but we did normal uh, childhood things. One interesting thing in in researching this, one of the childhood things we did was in the summer we would go swimming on the there was a base and it had a, a swimming pool. And it was freezing cold water because in northern Germany you didn't get, you know, warm, fuzzy water, but it was pretty darn cold. It wasn't until I was doing research that I found out there was a missile silo underneath that pool aimed towards the east. And wow. it was a bit of a shock I had to <laughs> when I when I discovered that, because we had obviously no idea that there was anything like that on the base. But my gosh. Yeah. So was the was the launch tube like directly underneath the pool or was it like an entire tunneling complex, you know, underneath there? To be honest, ju just I'm, I would 
I couldn't tell you, but I it did say there were multiple missiles when I found it mm. when I found the article about it. And okay, so okay. I, I I couldn't tell you because you know I was totally unaware. And it, and by the time I went I went back to the base. It's now it was used by the Germans to house refugees during the refugee crisis of twenty fifteen, mm. and it's now been turned over to a local community and. It's like an industrial area now. Oh, okay. So. Okay, I see. Well, one of the it got my mind spinning immediately because digging out a large community swimming pool is perfect cover for you know digging out uh, a subterranean bunker or launch complex, something like that. You know, there's a you've already got a perfectly good reason for all the earth moving equipment because I believe that those were very carefully guarded secrets where those actual missiles were during the Cold War. So it could very well have been directly, directly underneath the pool. Oh, absolutely. And, and it was, Amazing. and it was. But, you know, you asked about the Cold War, and, I mean, yes, there there were moments. The Cuban Missile Crisis was one moment when I remember everyone was very nervous. We, we were not far from what is called the Folder Gap, which was mm -hmm. the, the most vulnerable, vulnerable part of West Germany to Russian aggression, Russian tank maneuvering. There was a lot of tension around the, the missile crisis. And in fact, my mother was instructed, we had to do, we were given sea rations and, to put in the, our car. And my mother had to do, take the whole family without my father, take the whole family. And she had specific meeting points that she had to get to in the event that war broke out and so that that was that was pretty frightening and i do remember it vividly although the more frightening thought was my mother wasn't very good with directions she kept saying well we'll probably wind up in east germany <laughs> so so, <laughs> so it but it never came to pass we didn't actually have to implement the plan because hmm. things calmed down shortly thereafter but okay Okay. Yeah, it's it's very, very good for everybody that the Cold War never turned hot because that would have been a, a terrible place for your family to be stuck at that time. Although your father was working to keep it cold, I'm sure. Right. Exactly. So, I'm curious. During that time period, could you, on the West German side, could you approach the border? Like, could you walk right up to the fence, you know, away from the checkpoints, or was that like a no, 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 never get within you know 500 meters of the fence line kind of thing? Well, quite frankly. When I was that age, at that point, we were never even exposed to the border. Oh, wow. I used to play Little League Baseball, and we would go down to Bad Hersfeld. We would go to Fulda. I mean, I, I, I never saw the border. And so that's one reason I, in doing this research, I really wanted to see those, those border points. The only time I saw anything that resembled, I mean, um, a border crossing was when I, I took the duty train after the wall went up. My sister and I took the duty train to, Ber to West Berlin from West Germany. And to take the duty train, you obviously have to cross the, the border. And we, we crossed the border in Helmstedt and we were put on a train. My father took us up. We had very close German friends in Berlin. So we were, my sister and I were going to visit with my parents' friends. And it was right after 
after the wall. It was the winter after the wall went up. My mother had taken the duty train earlier in the summer, a week before the wall went up. And there's a photo in the book of her and her friends at the, wall, at the Brandenburg Gate before the wall was there. And then six months later, there are pictures that I took as a 12, 10, 12-year-old 12 of the wall in the winter and some of the incidents that occurred when we took that trip. But crossing the border was, was pretty frightening because you, you weren't allowed to, the curtains were drawn uh, very tightly. You, you were t instructed not to look out at all hmm. on the train. And at one point it stopped in the middle of the night. We got on at about eight o'clock or nine o'clock at night and it went very slowly. And I, I have to confess, I peeked through the curtain. <laughs> When it when it stopped and I saw all the Russian soldiers along the side of the train, they were they came on for some reason and then it, it went on. It proceeded, but you know they had the the fur hats and it was very it was quite exciting as a as a kid. I I thought it was quite a kick, but it was also a little frightening. So. I'll bet. I'll bet. I can certainly understand that. Yeah. Now that you mentioned, I I'm realizing that you were there even before the wall went up. So was there like a noticeable change, noticeable change in the tensions in your area once the wall went up, even though you were not in Berlin at the time? Oh yeah. I, I you know, there was a lot of, it, it was tense from then on. Um, and hmm. it's interesting that you asked about I, in retrospect, I, I never actually saw the border near Kassel or anywhere else. Um, you know, I saw baseball fields for Little League. That was about it. But hmm. no, it was, it's, it's interesting. But it was tense. And you could feel it. I mean, again, being a child, you're protected a bit from it. You know, my parents were mm -hmm. probably very, very nervous, I'm sure. So... Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard for me to imagine what that was like because your father's got a very important job to do there and they're accompanied tours. I mean, like, obviously, they don't prevent people from bringing their families over. So but I guess he had to kind of weigh the priorities of his work against the potential danger for the family and decided that, you know, correctly decided that it was it was worth the time because <clears throat> nothing happened to any of you, of course. And you were there for a very, very pivotal era in history. No, it was it was absolutely it was in a very exciting time to be there. I'm glad, very grateful that he opted to bring us over, and you know it was an experience of a lifetime, and it continues to be important to me. You know, obviously. Oh yeah, cool. I can tell. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's important to me, and I wasn't even there. I wasn't <laughs> even alive. Period. So but here I am. So, Michael, can you tell? You mentioned a couple of the photos already. Can you? kind of just describe a, a couple of the photos and the stories behind them. I mean, we don't have them in front of us, of course, but your book is primarily a photo book. Right. So can you talk about why you selected certain photos and what really was going on uh, behind the scenes, so to speak? Sure. Well, I had, I approached it from three different angles or a variety of angles. I had been to Berlin a number of times, both at that time in the 60s, and I've been back two or three, three or four times. And over the years, for example, I've taken pictures of the wall, 
And when I first went back to Berlin, I would say, what, 15 years ago, <laughs> there was still a lot of wall there and a lot of graffiti on the wall. Anyway, I started, the book is comprised of, of archival photos from family, photos that I took at various points, the trip to Germany a year, two years ago. Uh, I did a lot of photography at the base. I did a lot of, there's, there are snippets. Because the the book has, I think, around 55 photos. And I also took a lot of of photos at the borders. And so there's there's an image of a a border sign that says you're approaching approaching the border and only military personnel are allowed to proceed. And that was from an actual border point, a border checkpoint. I took pictures in various museums that I there's a, a picture at the Stasi Museum, which is a fascinating museum to go to in Berlin also. It's remarkably interesting. But I took some photos there. I took, you know, I, I, I chanced upon a list of Stasi, Stasi safe houses. That's a mouthful. And I photographed some of those. Uh, not many of the, I don't think any of those photos actually made it of the safe houses because, you know, they were apartment buildings and I managed to get inside a couple of them. But there wasn't much you could you, you could photograph other than their, the hallway and the mailboxes and that sort of thing. So but and there are also pictures, some of the well, as I mentioned, the tools of the trade. There are quite a few pictures of those. There are pictures of their memorabilia. There's my mother's ticket on the duty train that is is actually quite interesting. It's the original ticket that she had. I found it in family archives. There are pictures of my dad at work with his the other agents. There are photos of I mean, it's a wide variety. It, it, it's, it's more an atmospheric conglomeration of photos that, that tell a story. And that's what I was really looking for. I might also mention that I, I found the most incredible this book designer, Aneta Kowalczyk, and, and the Blow Up, she works with Blow Up Press, and who, who are the publishers of the book in Poland. And, you know, Poland is famous for its graphic artists and graphic design. And she hmm. she was just named one of the top 10 designers in Poland. And, oh, wow. And quite frankly, she did a marvel. I, I told her I wanted a sense of mystery for the viewer not to be told everything, that they would have to figure it out on the, as they went through. And, and it worked. I think it really does. Another really major discovery I made, and it was near the end of my research, and it was, I was euphoric. I was visiting my mom, and uh, I opened up one of the closets at her apartment, and lo and behold, I saw five uh, slide trays, and I thought, hmm, I haven't, my dad took a lot of slides, and he was a photographer, and I, I pulled them down, and I thought, oh, it would be nice if there were some from Germany in that period. And sure enough, I found about 200, oh. 200 very vintage photos that he had taken. 
And what's fun in the book, uh, there were photos I took on my trip to Berlin in uh, 1961. And my dad took a trip the following summer. He had uh, some a meeting in Berlin. And he took pictures at Checkpoint Charlie and, again, all of the the wall and all of the associated sites along the wall. And so the, the book juxtaposes those. And so some of them are mine when I was 12 and some are his. And his had been seriously deteriorated because nobody had paid any attention to the slides and the carousels. I had them all scanned, but I've left in the book, many of them are still in the the state in which I found them, which gives a sense of, of history. And I was quite excited by that. Yeah, there it is wonderful. And just like you said, it is very, very atmospheric book. And it does leave a lot of questions to the reader, but that entire period does, is, is one thing I have certainly taken away from the past couple of years of research. So I really appreciated it for that. It is unlike any book that I've read and or completed for the podcast in the past because it is primarily photos, but you know, I loved it. Honestly, it was very fascinating. And there was some terrific additional stuff like the one-time pad ciphers that you mentioned thrown in there and just, just a very, very enjoyable book. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jesse. I appreciate it. So absolutely. Michael, do you feel after you've completed this project, do you feel like you know your father a little bit better now? Oh, absolutely. It's been, and I think, you know, he's smiling down at me. Uh, very proud, I'm sure, because to honor him in a way, I'm very, very happy to honor his service and what he did for the country. So it's a good feeling. And I feel like I've gotten some closure around this, this issue. So that's good. Yeah, that's good. Did he, after he retired with your, your later conversations, did he open up at all more about it or, or not really? Oh yeah. He, I mean, some of the anecdotes, that he told are, are, are things that I put in, in, in the book. He opened up a, a number, you know, he, he would talk, he never, he never went into any detail. Occasionally he would tell a tale about, you know, he, he said one time he was, he was investigating an airman who they suspected of, of espionage. And he said that, you know, this guy was not the brightest bulb, and he would show up for for meetings with his handler, and he'd be in his jacket, his Air Force jacket, with with the name of his division on the back, and <laughs> and you know, it was, oh my it was you know, it wasn't very high high class <laughs> espionage. So, well. I wonder. I have to wonder if his East German handler was like, "Oh my gosh, what is this guy doing? He's going to get us arrested." Exactly. Something like that. <laughs> wow. Amazing. That, that's fascinating, and I'm very glad that you were able to get some closure there. It's unfortunate that there weren't more records, like you said, that would have shined further light. I, you know, I wonder if there's something that's misfiled somewhere, or or something like that. You know, that will will ultimately never see the light of day if a FOIA won't uncover it. No. That, uh, I've thought about writing again and trying to maybe get a, uh, someone who is a little more uh, loose about things. But, you know, then I thought, you know, I, I've learned enough. Uh, I, I feel I feel comfortable about what I've what I've done and what yeah. I've learned. So 
Um, I understand. I understand. Yeah. Totally. So fantastic. So Michael, when is the book out? Is it out now? Early October, 2023? Is it already published? It is. It's funny you ask. I'm going to Warsaw on Tuesday to sign 700 copies. It will be out at the end of this week. Um, End of this week. Okay, great. So, okay, well, yeah, we're this episode is going to be debuting on the 9th of October. So, it's already out by the 9th then, is that oh, right? Oh, definitely. It will be out by the 9th. Okay, great. Yeah. Great. Great. And, and Okay, it, so every for everybody listening, it's The Need to Know by Michael Honiger and it is available now as you're listening to this episode. And you can get my can I mention the website just to Of course. Yeah. You can purchase it directly from the publisher at Blow Up Press, all run together. Blow Up, as in the film, blowuppress.eu. You'll see the need to know it's it's prominently displayed. Great. So, okay, yeah, I'll I'll share that link once the episode is out, and once I I mention this on my social channels as well, so that'll make it easy for everybody who wants to find it. Great. And you can also get it by the link on my website. So at michaelhonigerphotos.com. Great. Okay, michaelhonigerphotos.com. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. So, Michael, now that this is out and after you finished autographing and everything, what are you going to be working on next? Do you have another project in mind already? Well, I, I, yeah, I'm at. I'm at the stage. I'm working on street photography here, and I live in Nice, France. I'm doing a lot of street photography of late and trying something just totally different. But I'm always eager to hear of new projects that that interest me. So the street photography is keeping me busy and 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 excited. But if something else comes along, I I'm easily distracted. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy yeah i i certainly know that feeling there's always another story to read into and that's that's honestly my favorite part about it not even the talking about it part but the initial dive into a story and kind of uncovering something that's new to me uh and if if not new to the world at least but uh that that is a lot of fun to find something new and really get down deep into it exactly exactly so Great. So are you on any of the social media sites, anything profiles you can share if people want to connect with you I'm besides on, at your website? Yeah, I'm on Instagram at Michael Honiger Photos. And you'll see a lot of pictures from the book. Facebook, Michael Honiger Photos. Wonderful. Okay, great. Well, I really appreciate the chat, Michael, and the book was wonderful, like I mentioned. So I'm um, glad to see you're getting it out there and getting your, your father's story, at least a, a fraction of it out there a, a little bit more for people who are interested. Well, thank you very much for having me on, Justin. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure, Michael. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my page on Instagram at Spycraft 101. You can also find more great articles on my website, spycraft101.com. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there's lots more to come. Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The stories and statements expressed herein are experiences and opinions. They may not reflect the views of the host or the production studio. It's okay if you disagree with our content. No piece of media is right for everyone. If you love Spycraft 101, please check us out online, on Instagram, on YouTube, 
and especially on Patreon. Thank you for listening.